Welcome to Epiphany Fellowships Podcast. My name is Dr. Eric Mason, lead pastor and founder of Epiphany Fellowship in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. Thank you so much for tuning into our podcast. Our desire is to see people everywhere show off the glory of Christ in every area of life. God bless you as you listen and consider subscribing so that you can tune in every week to check out new messages. God bless you and take care. He's got enough love, not just for me. He's got enough love to deal with my mess and all of my problems. But, but it doesn't take away from the infinite reserve that he has for each and every one of you to extend his grace and his mercy in your life daily where it's renewed each and every morning. What a God we serve. What a mighty God we serve. Something that we should think on and meditate on each and every day is how great our God is and how infinite his mercy is toward us. That's good news. Amen. If you would, um, stand with me and open your Bibles to uh, the book of Titus, chapter 1, beginning in verse 10. Can you take me down just a little bit? Titus chapter 1, beginning at verse 10. We're going to read down through verse 16. If you're there, say amen. If you need more time, say hold on. All right, that was quite a few. Amen. Titus chapter 1, verse 10. Y'all know I like to do odds and evens. So I got the evens, y'all got the odds. We're going to read the last verse together, amen? What y'all got? All right. This is the word of the Lord. For there are many rebellious people, full of empty talk and deception, especially those from the circumcision party. One of their very own prophets said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. And may not pay attention to Jewish myths and those commands of people who reject the truth. Altogether, they claim to know God, but they deny him by their works. They are detestable, disobedient, and unfit for any good work. Title of our text this morning is simply this. You can't fool me. You can't fool me. Let's pray. Father, we are so grateful and thankful for your word. In your word, there is instruction. There is life. Um, in your word, we see the depth of your love for us. In your word, we see your patience toward us, your mercy and your kindness. And we are so forever grateful that you have revealed yourself to us. 
all that we need to know for life and godliness, all that we need to know about what it takes for us to be saved is found in your word. We are made whole by your word. We are healed through your word. So Father, we pray that as we open your word today, we would do so with humble hearts, with minds ready to receive and be transformed by that very word so that we might look like your son, Jesus, who is the Christ. This we pray and the only name that matters, the name of our King and our Savior. All of God's people said amen. Amen. You may be seated. You can't fool me. Now, I, I, love, um, I love watching the Nature Channel, like Nat Geo and all that stuff, especially Nat Geo Wild, you know, when the animal's going all crazy and they like fighting each other and stuff. And so you get to learn a lot about different animals if you spend a lot of time watching these shows, very obscure facts and different things like that. And so over the, my course of time studying animals on Nat Geo, I've come to gain a great respect for the bear. There's, there's, there's two primary kinds of bears in the United States. They are the black, the black bear and the brown bear. And there are a couple of different types of brown bears. I'm not going to get into it today because I'm here to preach, not to do a zoology <laughs> presentation. But in my study of the bear, you know, if there was a bear that I wanted to come in contact with, it wouldn't be the brown bear. Now, you know, I live in North Philadelphia, so you don't see too many bears around here. <laughs> but I happened to be in upstate New York a few years ago. I was uh, taking some of our youth to uh, a camp out in, uh, up in the mountains with a, a group called Young Life. And uh, amen, we got some Young Life people, amen. And, you know, we were walking around at nighttime, and as somebody who lives in the city, has lived in the city for a while now, when you get into places that are too dark and too quiet. <laughs> you know, I'd rather hear some sirens going, because I know the people's around, you know? If people committing crime, at least I know somebody else is there, right? And so I asked the guy, I said, I said, you know, is there anything that we should be worried about out here? You know, that's one of my first questions I got to ask because I can't see in the dark. There's only so far you can see. We got to walk through these trails to get back to like the main area of where we're sleeping at in the camp. And you know, they look, no, no, it's not that big a deal. You got a couple bears up here and stuff. And I'm a couple bears. <laughs> Praise God, I don't adventure out into the dark and all that stuff. So I was where I needed to be at nighttime. The day after that we left uh, and I'm driving on my car, I turn out from where the camp is to get onto the main road. As soon as I turn, a black bear runs in front of my car. As close as Pastor Larry is to me right now. If I was going five miles per hour faster, I would have hit that bear and destroyed and totaled my car. Now one of the things that you gotta know about bears is that if you come in contact with a bear and you don't have a car to kinda be a barrier for you, like you just run up on a bear in the woods, there is possibility for survival. Now, if you're far enough away, you can make yourself real big and tall and scream and make a lot of noise and try to scare the bear away. Your best defense is probably some bear spray, they say, because it sprays up to 30 feet 
and bears don't really like that. If a bear starts to attack you, do you know what you're supposed to do? No, you're not supposed to play dead. If you play dead, you're gonna be dead. You gotta fight back with all your might. Now, if worst case scenario, if you get caught up with a bear and you have no other option, then you gotta cover your major organs. You gotta roll up into a ball, cover your head, your neck, your intestines. See, I know, some of y'all didn't watch The Revenant with Leonardo DiCaprio, but y'all better learn something today. Typically, bears are not trying to kill you, they're just defending themselves. Now, the worst possible scenario is for you to run into a bear with their cubs. If you run into a bear with their cubs, you're probably gonna die. This is very much like how Paul is instructing Timothy right now with false teachers. Timothy, as a leader in the church, as a pastor of God's people, you can't just let any old body run up on your family members. You can't let anybody run up on your spiritual children. They better fear for their lives. If they're going to run up on your spiritual kids and cause some damage or destruction. And so here in this book, these first chapters, he's already walked with Titus through, not Timothy, I'm sorry, Titus. He's already walked with Titus through what it looks like to establish healthy leadership within the church to lead the church properly. And now he's going to get into some of the specifics of who these false teachers are and what they're talking about and why it's necessary for Titus to be on his guard to stop them. Look with me at verse 10. He says, for there are many rebellious people full of empty talk and deception, especially those from the circumcision party. This brings me to my first and only point this morning. Healthy leaders are distinguished by godly character and good works. Healthy leaders are distinguished by godly character and good works. One of the first descriptions he gives to these uh, individuals, these false teachers, are that they are empty talkers, rebellious people, and deceivers and he says that there are many of them now one of the interesting things about this is that Paul is telling Titus about a group of people who are deceiving who are empty talking which is another word for they use useless words they just like to talk about things that really have no eternal value or or they don't matter that much they always want to argue about stuff that really ain't that important they want to draw your attention away from really the, the core things of scripture that matter most in your life to talk about these frivolous things that have no importance. He says, man, but there's a lot of them and guess where they are found? In the church. He says, there's many of them hanging out among you in the church that are wrecking people's lives with frivolous things that don't matter. And he says that the majority of them come from the, the Jewish segment of the church, the religious folk, the ultra-religious folk, the, the, the Jewish population, the circumcision uh, uh, party. Now, it's, it's interesting that word uh, deceivers is what they teach has just enough truth to deceive the immature and enough cleverness to fool the gullible. 
So for those who aren't in their word enough, who don't know their word enough, you're likely to be easily deceived. You're, you're likely to be fooled into false teaching because you don't know your word enough. And so Paul here is telling Titus, Titus, there's some people in your congregation that get easily caught up in all of this frivolous conversation about things that don't matter, things that contradict the gospel because they don't spend enough time in their words. And they allow people to come in and fool them with a bunch of nonsense. I like that word empty talker. It's what we would call today a, candy can, a cotton candy preacher. It means you got to you got a lot of stuff, but no substance. But cotton candy preachers produce cotton candy Christians. He says, he says, these people are deceiving, full of empty talk and rebellious, especially those from the circumcision party. He says, it is necessary to silence them. I like what that word means, it means to put a muzzle on them, to, to render them voiceless. Paul's telling Titus here, you gotta stop what they're saying. You can't even give them room to have a conversation with you. He said, silence them. Don't hear them out. Don't try to understand what they're saying. Titus, you have a responsibility as a leader within the church to allow in no uncertain, uh, in un uncertain circumstances, false teachers to come in and talk to your people. There ain't going to be nobody teaching Bible study that I don't trust preaching the word. Nobody standing on the pulpit preaching the word just because we're friends if you've got terrible theology. I'm not going to be pointing my people to YouTube videos of men who are not in the church but are pastoring. He said, Titus, you need to silence them. And it's interesting that he isolates a certain group of people that are causing the most trouble. See, Paul wasn't afraid to call people out personally and name them in the text. See, sometimes today we're a little soft. He said, oh, man, I don't know if you want to say their name. That's not loving. No, Paul wants to put on blast everybody who's a false teacher so that his people know exactly who not to listen to. He says, no, we're not having that in the church. We're not having that among, amongst God's people. Whatever they were teaching, we don't know exactly what it is, but somewhat of what they were teaching had to do with uh, extreme self-discipline and ritual purification as a means for salvation. Where they were teaching that if you could fast well enough, if you could abstain from sex long enough, if you could read your Bible well enough, if you could attend church regularly and participate on the worship team, if you did all those things, then you'd be all right with God. For them, it was a matter of activity, the discipline of looking spiritual that mattered most. So Paul has to come in and he's beginning to shut this down and say, Titus, you got to let our people know that they can look as spiritual as they want to and it doesn't make a drop of difference. He says, you got you to silence them. That's why it was necessary, if we remember back at verse 9 from a few weeks ago, he says that, he says that 
The type of men that need to be elders are those who are holding to the faithful message as taught so that they will be able to encourage with sound teaching and refute those who contradict it. This is why it was necessary for men in the church who, who led the church to be able to instruct with sound teaching and refute error with sound teachings that contradicted the message of the gospel because there are people in the church who are going to try to lead others astray. So healthy leaders need to know how to identify false teachers and silence them. He says you got to silence them. But look, 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 look at what he says. He says this, look at the results of their teaching. He says that in, 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 verse, uh, in verse 11, he says they are ruining entire households by what they are teaching. Teaching what they shouldn't. He says one of the results of false teachers is they bring chaos. They don't bring unity to God's people. They bring chaos to God's people. Whereas healthy leaders, elders of the church, one of the requirements was that their family was in order. He said false teachers, they disrupt families, turns them on their head. Some of you may have family members right now that have gone astray into myths and genealogies, and other strange religions, always conversing about things that don't matter and never talking about their soul. He says that false teachers come in and they, they, they just break up families. They cause confusion. They cause disruption. They cause chaos. They cause break, broken relationships because you have some in the family who are strong in the faith and others in the family who are weak in the faith. And those who are strong in the faith are constantly trying to minister to those who are weak in the faith. And those in the weak in the faith don't even realize how deceived they are. Not only the results of their teaching, he says... He says, man, you got to check out the motivation of their, che their teaching. He says the results of their teaching is chaos. But, but the motivation of their teaching is money. He says, he says they're teaching what they shouldn't in order to get money dishonestly. Now, I know everybody talks about the issues that the church has with money. But you're fooling yourself if you don't think that these false teachers out here running the streets ain't about that money either. I'm still waiting on this money for the school, Umar Johnson. What's the motivation? Why are you in this? Are you serving because you love God's people? Are you trying to create a little extra room in your pocket? Are you serving in a poor congregation and you got nice clothes and a nice car? While all your people struggling? Why are you really here, fam? See, Paul don't hold no punches in this text. He said, you should be able to tell who's the real of the real, who's fake. You should be able to tell who the frauds are. Why are you really here? Now, it's interesting that Paul even, uh, 
he even uses the Cretan society against them. Here, here's one thing that said of them. He said that, that the Cretans had a reputation of loving money. He says, it says this from the historian, historian Polybius. He says, so much, in fact, do sordid love of gain and lust for wealth prevail among them that the Cretans are the only people in the world in whose eyes no gain is disgraceful. They love money so much that it, for them, it didn't matter how you got it as long as you had it. Paul goes on and he says, verse 12, one of their very own prophets said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. And now what he's doing, he's, he's like, Titus, man, he's like, Titus, you don't even, he was like, you can use their own words against them. Now this quote comes from one of their prophets who wasn't like a prophet prophet, but he was just a wise guy, a really wise man who they admired and looked up to. Like, I mean, this dude was running, he was the OG of the streets that everybody listened to. And so Paul says, man, let, let's, let's put him on the stand. It was like, man, so, um, so brother, I, I noticed you're from Crete. Now, what would the Cretans say about you? How do they describe you? Well, you know, I'm, I'm, you know, I'm one of the OGs in the street. You know, they look up to me. You know, everybody show love when they see me in the streets. You know, everybody always listen to what I say. Don't nobody got nothing to say bad about me. You know, I mean, I'm out here doing this thing. So, so, so everybody respects you, huh? Yeah, I would say that they respect you. They, they look up to you, huh? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I, you know, every, every, they talk well about me. I'm one of the most popular figures in, in the city. So, you know, you got a good reputation in the streets. How would you characterize the Cretan society? Oh, man, them jokers is crazy. Listen, if I could give you some hints when you go visit, Hold on to your pockets. Don't trust nobody because they always lying. And then they lazy in a mug. Hold on, hold on. So you're telling me that you are well respected in the community. Like that they listen to your advice and your wisdom. That you have a reputation of being noble and wise. And the best thing that you can say about them is that they're evil, lazy, and money hungry? Paul says, oh yeah, we're going to use that. Titus, when you go before the congregation, let them know that one of their own people said that they can't be trusted. And don't just say some of their own people. Be very specific. One of their own prophets. Somebody that they look up to in the neighborhood. Somebody who's got his ears to the street. The best thing that he could say about them was that they love money, they're lazy, and they're evil and can't be trusted. What an indictment for a false teacher that the only person who has credibility in your community, the best thing that they could say about you is that you can't be trusted. If the world says that you can't be trusted, how much more should the church say that you can't be trusted? Paul is trying to get Timothy on to this idea here. Timothy, you have to get the people to look not just at the words that they're saying, but the character that they're behaving with. Titus, you got to expose them. Expose their character. Expose what society says about them. Expose what people they look up to think about them. It's not just what about they say, it's about what they do. Does it align with the character of God? Does it align with the mission of the church? Does it align with God's love for his people? Paul says simply this. He says, this, 
Yeah, I agree with the boy. His testimony is true. What he said was right on the, hit the nail on the head. So Paul here is trying to get Titus to understand. Titus, use the gospel to convict them, to contradict what they're saying. But you can even use their character. You can even use how society views them and some of the, the ill intent that they come into this game with and turn it against them using their very own people's words. He doesn't stop there. He says, for this reason, because they're in it for just the money, because they're disrupting entire households, because they have no credibility in their own communities, for this reason, Titus rebuked them sharply. Rebuke them sharply. Not just rebuke them, but rebuke them sharply. Now, that's not the part that gets me. The part that gets me is what comes next. He says, rebuke them sharply so that they may be sound in the faith. Now, I'm going to be honest with you. I struggle with that a little bit. He's saying, rebuke them so that they may be sound in the faith. Over in 2 Timothy chapter 4, Paul is talking to Timothy and he says, there's going to come a time, Timothy, where people no longer listen to sound doctrine. They're going to want their ears tickled and they're going to accumulate for themselves lots of teachers with strange doctrines that they're going to want to hear. And, but listen to the instruction that he gives him in uh, chapter 2 in terms of how he's to relate to those people who have been deceived. He says, the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but must be gentle to everyone, able to teach and patient, instructing his opponents with gentleness. Look what he says next. Perhaps God will grant them repentance, leading them to the knowledge of the truth. Then they may come to their senses and escape the trap of the devil who has taken them captive to do his will. See, the reason I struggle with this is because I don't have that type of patience. I don't often extend that type of grace with an opponent. He said, instruct an opponent with gentleness. I'm so busy trying to win the argument that I've lost the person. Here Paul is trying to tell Titus, the rebuke is not for you. The rebuke is not to show others how much smarter you are. The rebuke is not to win the argument. The rebuke is not to dismiss their argument. The rebuke is so that they might come to repentance and believe the gospel again. You say, I, I, I know when the rebuke has become about me because I'm more concerned with winning. Because I'm more concerned about making them look foolish with their understanding of the word. And my heart hasn't yet traveled far enough to see a person that needs desperate saving. Paul is telling Titus here, rebuke them sharply, but the purpose of that is so that they might come home, that they might be sound in the faith, that what is an error might be corrected in them, that they might be restored to sound relationship with God, their father. He said, I want, I want you to go beyond just arguing because the man of God, the man, the woman of God must not be quarrelsome, 
I want you to look towards their heart. Doesn't mean you don't rebuke them sharply, but it means you do so with a purpose. This extends far beyond you. He says, rebuke them, but make sure when you do it, it's for the purpose of them being sound in the faith. I like what one commentary says. It says, as a surgeon cuts away diseased and infectious tissue that threatens the health of the body, we must cut away toxic teaching. What is our goal in performing this spiritual surgery? It is pastoral. It is redemptive. It is so that those who are self-deceived and deceiving others may be sound in the faith. We cut to cure. We operate to liberate those trapped in the quicksand of spiritual bondage and malnutrition. We confront, but we confront in love. We love them enough to point out their error with the hope of their recovery to spiritual health and vitality. I know that what I'm about to say has no bearing on this passage in particular, but sometimes when I look out into our current state of things in the church, I wonder how much church hurt has to do with people's willingness to have their ears tickled. I wonder how much people's poor experiences with bad leadership in the church have made them open to false teaching. One of the most dangerous things about false teachers is not necessarily always their doctrine, but it's the access that they have through relationships. That's why so much brokenness happens from within the church. See, a lot of times we spend most of our time talking about being afraid of what the government's going to do or what this rogue group outside of the church is going to do when most of the issues happen in the church because false teachers have access to relationships. They are trusted individuals. And so when you hear something from them, you assume the best about their intent because you know them. You are much easily drawn away into false teaching by a friend than by an enemy. That's why Paul tells the Ephesian elders that there will be wolves among you in the flock that will rise up from inside of the church. So be on guard. He goes on and says in verse 15, to the pure, everything is pure. But to the defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure. In fact, both their mind and conscience are defiled. Basically, what he's saying is that for the person who is morally clean, all things are ritually clean. For the person who is in right relationship with God, they know that there's nothing that they could do to get closer to God outside of what Christ has already done for them. So they're not trying to figure out ways to make themselves ritually clean before God and acceptable before God to be received. But he says for those people who are morally unclean, they're always looking for some angle that they can take to work their way closer to God so that they feel like 
they have to read their Bible more. Or that in order for them to be saved, they have to follow the Sabbath. Or that they have to wash their hands a certain way before they eat. Or that they have to attend so many services. He says, for the, for the spiritually clean person, for the, the morally clean person, those who know that they are obedient to God and following in his ways, they're not looking for additional ways for salvation. The morally unclean person, those who are already disconnected and detached from God, constantly searching and grabbing for every which way that can pull them closer to God, trying to earn their way in to relationship. Paul asserts that those who are morally defiled and do not believe cannot be made acceptable to God even by ritual purity because everything about them is already unclean. Jesus makes this same note in Mark chapter 7 when he's talking about how what makes you unclean is what comes out of you from the inside, not what you put in yourself from the outside. He said, if you are morally disobedient and detached from God and unbelieving to God, there is no activity that you can do to make yourself acceptable. Paul's just trying to get this into their heads to say, listen, there is a direct correlation between belief and behavior. Because for the false prophets, one of the things that they were saying what is that it wasn't necessary to obey God in their good works as long as they were ritually pure. Listen, you can steal a little bit. Just make sure you wash your hands and your clothes and all that stuff afterwards. You can have sex all, of, all you want outside of marriage. Just make sure that you fast for two days straight. For them, they were saying, listen, it doesn't matter that you don't live for God in your life as long as you do certain steps to make yourself feel spiritual afterwards. Paul saying, man, this ain't how that work. If you don't love God and obey him, by following his commands, ain't no amount of spiritual activity you can do to get before his presence. But if you love God and obey him and are following his commands, then there's nothing you can do to be removed from his grasp. He says that's the beauty of the gospel here, is that these false teachers are trying to make you think that you can earn it. That there's something about you that's good enough in God's sight to say, you know what, I, I think I'm going to let you in because I was pleased by that. No, the only thing that pleases God is his son. And the only thing about you that, please, that he's pleased with is if you know him. You can't even get to God unless you know his son. He's not even letting you in his house. You can knock on the door all you want, but there's no getting in unless you know Jesus. Listen to what he says. He says, and this, this is the crux of the passage that he's trying to get out. He's saying... Verse 16, they claim to know God, but they deny him with their works. They make a habit of talking a good game about how close they are to God, about how much insight that they have from God, about all the things that they've studied that have brought them closer to God, but nothing about their life and character say God. 
All you hear out of their mouth is God, 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 God. But when you see the trail behind them, he's missing. The terrible part about it is it doesn't even say that they don't know him. It says that they outright deny him. This isn't a matter of ignorance. It's a matter of contradiction. They know God, but they refuse to follow him. They know God, but they think their way is better. They know God, but they declare by their works that they don't need him. This is a simple matter of exterior, interior. Their exterior didn't match their interior. Now, I spend too much time on Zillow. Because every once in a while, I like to look up the nice houses. I'm always searching different parts of the city just in case I want to upgrade my ministry. And I'm looking at square footage. You know, when you, when you tap into Zillow, you know, you can, you can draw a little, a little section, right? You put in your little filters, like how much you want to spend, how much square footage, bathroom, bedroom, all that type of stuff. And so, you know, I got my settings on there, so I just go and search in different places. And there are some things that you can find out about the house just by looking at the outside and reading some of the information about what it tells you about itself. So I can look and see, oh, this, this house, man, it's got four bedrooms, it's got two and a half baths. You know, the half bath is on the first floor. The second bath is, is in the hallway, and then the third bath is, is in the master suite. And then I pop up on the picture. You know, they got the small pictures, but you can click in there, and it makes them bigger, and then slide through. And every once in a while, you'll see this immaculate house come across this beautiful house, and, it's, and you see the price for it, and it's like, there's no way this house can be that price. Landscape, killing. Siding, killing. Got a two-car garage. I see nice yard space on it. And then I click into the pictures. And I begin to swipe through the pictures. And the more I swipe, the more frustrated I get. Because the inside of this house don't look like the outside of the house I just saw. They said this house got two and a half bathrooms. I only see one picture. <laughs> see a lot of chip paint on the wall, a lot of stained carpet, basement not even finished. <laughs> the reason I'm so frustrated is because I feel like they tried to deceive me. Like if I didn't look close enough, they would get me to believe that the house was really as nice as it was on the outside. And as good as a house is on the outside, I'm not living on the outside of the house. He said, for God's people, he said, you need to know what's happening on the inside. Because the inside is where the integrity of the house is. The inside is where the structure of the house is. The inside is where I'm going to spend most of my time. It's where I'm going to invite people over and dine with them. It's where I'm going to lay my head at night. I don't care what the outside of the house looks like as much as I do what the inside looks like. People of God, all he wants you to know today is that when you follow somebody, you better make sure that the inside looks a whole lot better than the outside. That when they profess God with their mouth, they don't deny him 
with their works. He says, he says, the one thing that you can't deny, the one thing that you can't masquerade, the one thing that you can't be deceive somebody with is your character. He said, the works don't lie. Say, you can hear all they want coming from their mouth. But when you look behind them, when you see the legacy that's been left, when you see the people that have been touched, when you see the organizations that they no longer have relationship with, when they see the family that they've left behind, when you see all the money in their bank account, but poor poverty around them, that doesn't lie. Paul here's trying to get Titus to, to let his people know that their lifestyles will quickly reveal whether or not they're about kingdom priorities. Are you about God's kingdom or are you about yourself? He finishes simply with this statement that these people, these type of people, he says they are detestable. These people are disobedient. They're unfit for any good work. So if I could summarize how I would describe this group of people, I would use the strongest words that I possibly could find. Detestable, disobedient, and unfit for any good work. Now, as I read the last half of these past, this passage, as I read this last verse in particular, I had the temptation to disassociate myself as being characterized like this. And then the more I thought about it, the more the Spirit struck me in my side and said, don't neglect the fact that every time you decide to rebel against me, you profess me with your mouth but deny me with your works. Every time you lash out at your children unjustly, you've professed me with your mouth and denied me with your works. Every time you've harbored anger against someone and haven't gone to them for restoration and reconciliation, you have denied me with your works, but professed me with your mouth. Every time you get on the job and tell people about Jesus, but cussing up a storm on Facebook, you've professed me with your mouth, but denied me with your work. See, people of God, even though he's describing false teachers, Paul says some statements in his other letters. He says, and such were some of you. He says, he, he says and, and you were once detestable, disobedient, and unfit for any good work. But, 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 but he always ends it with a but people of God. Because I don't believe that Paul here would want you to stay there. I don't even think the God of heaven would want you to stay there. He would say, yes, there was a time in your life where you were detestable, disobedient, and unfit for any good work, but I sent my son Jesus, but he lived a perfect life on your behalf, but he died a perfect death on the tree, 
but he was hung high and stretched wide, but he went into the grave and stayed there for three nights, but he was resurrected with all power in his hand. For anybody who has trusted in the name of Jesus Christ, they've been made clean. See, I like a little song that John P. Key used to sing. It says, won't he make you clean inside? That's the good news of the gospel, is that you don't have to worry about making yourself clean, because he'll make you clean if you trust him. He'll make you clean if you try him. He'll make you clean if you believe upon the name of his son. Look what the psalmist says. He says, purify me with hyssop and I will be made clean. Wash me and I will be whiter than snow. For I will take you from the nations and gather you from all countries and bring you into your own land. And I will sprinkle you clean with water and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all your impurities and all your idols. He even makes this indication when he talks to husbands. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, cleansing her with the washing of the water of the word. He will make you clean inside. It doesn't matter what you think you are right now. It doesn't matter how dirty you think you are, how far you are from him. If you trust him, he will make you clean. Father, thank you. Thank you for the cleansing power of the gospel. The cleansing power that makes unfit people fit. The cleansing power that makes disobedient people obedient. cleansing power that makes detestable people acceptable. The cleansing power that takes people who are far off and brings them near. The cleansing power that rescues. The cleansing power that takes broken people and heals them. Father, we say thank you. Thank you for Jesus Christ, for bearing the weight of sin that wasn't due to him. He shouldn't have died for us. I'm not worthy for him to carry my sin, but I'm so grateful that he did. All we can say is thank you, God. We say thank you just because we can act like we got a testimony from 10 years ago, but we got testimonies right now of your grace and your mercy. We say thank you, God, for your patience with us, for bearing with us, for not withholding your love from us. Help us, oh God, this day to walk worthy of the calling to which we've been called so that we might bear fruit of the work that you're doing within us. This we pray in the matchless and 
mighty name of Jesus Christ. If you agree with that, say amen. Thank you for tuning in to today's message. I hope that it was a blessing to you and it was aiding in your life to help you to show off the glory of Christ in every area of life. If this message has been a blessing to you, we want you to consider partnering with us in ministry so that we can maximize what God has called us to do locally, nationally, and internationally. You can go to epiphanyfellowship.org, go under give and consider donating. Thank you. Take care. See you next week.